0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm Mark Labram, I'm our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here, and I'm honored to be today's moderator. Uh, as you can imagine, overseeing our financial studies area, uh, I've had the pleasure and sometimes the burden of reading a large number of publications on the financial crisis. Uh, it's been probably the largest growth industry over the last couple of years. Uh, and so the question that comes naturally in my mind is, Well, Why another book on the financial crisis? What exactly does Financial Fiasco have to add that hasn't already been said? Uh, I start to take a look at the books that have been written, written so far, and I see them falling kind of in the two camps. There's been a lot of books that have been highly specialized, sometimes very narrowly focused by economists and financial experts. And then you've had other type of books that have been journalistic accounts by insiders or the press. Uh, I look at the former as sort of taking, looking at the forest, and the latter is sort of walking us through the trees. Um, I found that you often have to read both or several type of books to try to get a really full account. Because on one hand, the scholarly accounts sometimes miss very important institutional details, uh, but the journalistic accounts quite often do not leave you with a framework to try to understand what exactly went wrong and how do you prescribe policy to avoid that. Uh, What I see the primary strength of financial fiasco being is it really kind of does both. I think it gives you a good good overview of the trees and the forest, uh, it does so without getting caught up in academic jargon. Uh, but on the other extreme, there are not endless pages about Jimmy Kane's bridge game. So you have a good balance there, uh, and I think it's really a good introduction, uh, and it's very accessible. You know, and for these very reasons and these very traits, uh, Cato's very proud to be the publisher of Financial uh, Fiasco, and I would say we're even prouder and more delighted to have uh, Johan Norberg serve as a senior fellow here. Um, in addition to serving as a senior fellow here at Cato, Johan has previously held positions at Timbro, and that's Sweden's most prominent free-market think tank. Uh, he has also held positions at the Center for a New Europe in Brussels. Uh, and I'm also happy to announce that Financial Fiasco is not his first book with Cato. That would be in defense of global capitalism, published in 2003, which I would also highly recommend. Uh, offering their comments on Financial Fiasco and the financial crisis in general are discussants. Uh, Don Kopecki is with Bloomberg News, Anthony Saunders with George Mason University, and we have uh, former Senator uh, John Sununu, who is our sort of surprise commentator this morning, joining us. Um, Don covers housing policy, mortgage finance, and financial regulation for Bloomberg's Washington Bureau. She's previously held positions at both Newsweek and Dow Jones, where she won the 2006 William R. Clabby Dow Jones Newswire Award for her coverage of accounting scandals at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, Prior to my coming to Cato, I spent a number of years working on GSC reform, and I believe I can safely say that I can think of no other journalist who has covered Fannie and Freddie more extensively, more in depth, more accurately uh, than Dawn. And I also welcome the very rare opportunity to ask her a few questions for a change. Um, Our next speaker is Professor Anthony Saunders, a distinguished professor of real estate finance in the Department of Management at George Mason University. Uh, Tony has previously taught at the University of Chicago, the University of Texas at Austin, and the Ohio State University. He is widely recognized as one of the leading scholars in finance, specifically in the areas of mortgage finance and securitization. Uh, In addition to his many academic accomplishments, uh, Tony also served as director and head of asset-backed and mortgage-backed securities research at Deutsche Bank in New York City. Um, Lastly, we have very honored to have former Senator John Sununu offer some brief comments. Uh, in addition to Senator's service in both the House and Senate, where he served in the Senate Banking Committee, uh, Senator Sununu, until recently, served on the Congressional Oversight Panel created as part of the TARP. Um, one of the responsibilities of that panel was to examine the causes of the financial crisis and to recommend policy proposals to avoid the next crisis. Uh, I also have to say, my... Uh, long years of staff in the Senate, uh, always looked for Senator Sununu as a leading voice in free markets, and we're very proud to have him here uh, as a commentator this morning. With that, I'd like to welcome all of of you and welcome all of our speakers this morning. Uh, Johan, the podium is yours.
1: Well thank you very much. Um, this is this is the book Financial Fiasco How America's Infatuation with Homeownership and Easy Money Created the Economic Crisis. And uh, I know that some people have think of me as insensitive being a Swede coming here and explaining how America started the first global economic crisis, the first global financial crisis I should say. But uh, let me assure you that uh, many countries tried to, to start the same crisis, and as we're going to see, many of the factors, uh, the causes were global in nature, but America happened to be the place with the kind of size and the kind of wealth that really made made it possible to, to wreck so many of the financial institutions that we're talking about. In the summer of 2005, you could see the real estate bubble on American television. By then, June 23rd, TLC, the network, started the show Property Ladder, a British TV series a reality show documenting how people bought a house and with borrowed money, and then they fixed it up and they sold it at a nice profit just months later on. This wasn't an isolated event. 21 days later, the rival uh, network Discovery Home Channel started Flip This House, a reality show based on the idea that, well, you follow a couple of people who buy a house, they borrow all the money, and then they fix it up, and they redecorate a little bit, and then they sell it at a profit just months later. And nine days later, a and E Network started their own show called Flip That House, um, a title that seems familiar by now and uh, an idea that seems pretty familiar. You know, people buy a house, they borrow all the money, they move some furniture from one room to another, and then they sell it at an incredible profit just days later. Because this is the way the real estate market worked in 2005, in the US and in many other places, in Sweden as well. It seemed like prices couldn't do anything else, just continue to climb. And you were a loser if you didn't participate in the market because you could make a nice profit just by staying in a house for a while and then selling it on to someone else. But of course, we could also call this show how to ruin the economy in seven easy steps. And that's what I'm going to walk you through right now. A summary of my book based on, uh, on the journalistic uh, stories and the uh, research on this, and based on many interviews with people in the industry, in the financial industry, but also in the financial inst- uh, regulatory authorities and in politics. Seven steps that makes a financial crisis like the one that we are just witnessing right now seem likely. Here are the seven steps. First of all, we have to go back in time eight years to a time that seemed very familiar to our own, an economic crisis where people feared a Japanese-style deflation story or perhaps even a 1930s depression. And everybody looked to the Federal Reserve and hoped that they would lower the federal fund rates, the short-term interest rates, to make sure that asset prices would stay high. And that's what they did. In 2001, after the dot-com bubble, when that began to uh, collapse, and after 9 terrorist attacks, the economy was in a state of shock. And Alan Greenspan responded by lowering interest rates in one year from 65 to 1.75%, and continued to reduce it, <clears throat> and in June 2003 reduced, three, reduced it to 1%, where it stayed for one year. And only then, and only slowly, it began to go back. This wasn't a, a normal response to... A crisis this was a particular discretionary policy which had the specific aim of of avoiding this particular crisis and some some problematic um, and avoid a repetition of what has happened in, in japan and in other places and this is what alan greenspan said himself when we looked back on the episode in 2003 well, something he you know he 's a bit complicated when he 's talking. Uh, I try to uh, apparently repeat the, um, the experience of listening to him by um, taking some spaces away but <laughs> He said, we agreed on the reduction despite our consensus that the economy probably did not need yet another rate cut. The stock market had finally begun to revive and our forecast called for much stronger GDP growth in the year's second half. Yet we went ahead on the basis of a balancing of risk. We wanted to shut down the possibility of corrosive deflation. We were willing to chance that by cutting rates we might foster a bubble, an inflationary boom of some sort which we would subsequently have to address. And this is, of course, what happened when you change the most important price in the economy, the price of money. People's uh, incentives changed completely, and this is what happened on the financial market. Suddenly it was expensive to have capital, but it was very cheap and very lucrative to use other people's money. As one investor said, I don't want to be in equities anymore and I'm not getting any return in my bond position with these interest rates. So happen on the market. We look more for more and more leverage and we reach for riskier asset classes. Give me yield. Give me leverage. Give me return. And some of the people who wanted to get more leverage was, of course, households on the real estate market. This is the interest rates. This is the, the inflationary boom. The inflationary boom ended up in real estate, in housing. In This is the annual inflation real estate prices in the U.S. And you can see that despite the fact that we had a severe economic crisis in 2002, prices continued to climb. And in 2003, with 1% interest rates and very lucrative mortgage uh, opportunities and Fed even told people that you should abandon your old fixed rates and, and begin with adjustable inter- rate mortgages because that will uh, lead to, to great prospects for you. So it climbed by 10-15% annually the real estate prices in the US. It felt like getting a house for free as someone mentioned, uh, called this. This is when you begin to see the, real, the reality shows that document how you can actually live in a house and make a profit by, by doing this. A lot of people who wouldn't buy a house because it was too risky, because they might lose their job, because the income wasn't sufficient, they began to realize that if they ended up in trouble, well, the, they could take out another loan based on the increase in real estate prices that we saw in 2003, 2004, and 2005. You can you can make sure that your house is your ATM. If you need cash, you can get it from there. And in 2002, right in the middle of this severe economic crisis, American households borrowed another $269 billion on their houses, especially in the states where you have non-recourse states, where it's possible to just leave your keys to the bank and leave without repaying the mortgage. In that case, not to try to, to, to follow this bubble ahead. But this was not just a spontaneous um, process. This was also something that um, politicians from left to right, from Democrats to Republicans, tried to try to facilitate by a battery of different uh, different activities. As Bush, President Bush said in 2002, we use the mighty muscle of the federal government in combination with state and local governments to encourage owning your own home. And we have this battery of deductions of... Uh assurances, of specific incentives, of pressure on private lenders and of government-sponsored enterprises that I'm sure we're going to talk about later on, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that were of incredible importance when it came to making sure that more mortgages, more housing loans went to people who were not seen by the private market as worthy of credit before, before because they were, had too uncertain or too low incomes. These weren't small institutions. These were some of the world's biggest enterprises. Just mentioning uh, Fannie Mae's trillion-dollar commitment in 1994 makes you realize the size of this. One trillion dollar going to people who could not afford to get a housing loan themselves before. And when that was done in 2000, they replaced it with the American Dream commitment. Two trillion dollars. Two thousand billion dollars going to trying to make sure that more people who weren't on the market before could own their own house. And in 2004, right in the middle of the most dramatic inflation in real estate, President Bush and his administration increased the targets for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Before they said that 50% of all the loans were supposed to go to people with a low income 20% were supposed to go to people with a very low income in 2004 this was replaced from 50 to 56% from 20 to 28% so more people entered the market pushed up prices even more and that increased the political pressure to make sure that even more activities were put into place to make sure that people could afford the now bizarre prices on the real estate market. As one person on, on this uh, institution said, it didn't take a lot of sophistication to notice what was happening to the quality of the loans after 2004. Anybody could have seen it, but nobody on the outside was even questioning us about it, because there was this political will to constantly increase the number of people who owned their own houses, no matter how this was done. And they were forced to buy more and more loans because this was a political target. Not just any loans. The stated income loans, where you don't prove your income, the so-called liar loans. The NINA loans, the no income, no asset loans. And in the end, even the NINA loans, the no income, no job, and no asset. No problem we will get your loan anyway. So the money, the easy money went into mortgages and in real estate but they also ended up in MBSs, in mortgage-backed securities because of innovations pioneered by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac but more and more taken over by Wall Street because this was seen as a success. People didn't institutions, lenders they didn't just lend the money and stayed there with the loan. They began to sell the loan onto others. And this is these are all the, uh, some mortgages out there on the market. What you do is that you buy thousands of loans from different parts of the U.S. and put them into a pool of different mortgages. And then you slice them up in different uh, categories and sell them on as securities, as bonds, where you sell them according to the risk class that the investor is interested in. If you own one of these mortgage-backed securities, you own a stake in the whole pool, not just if you own a safe bond. It doesn't mean that you only own the safest uh, mortgages. It means that you own a part of all of them. But it means that if things are for the worse, if the impossible would happen, that real estate prices would begin to be a bit depressed, it means that people who buy the riskiest classes of MBSs, they will lose the stream of income from the interest rates and first before people who have the mortgage-backed security one or two or whatever begin to lose their money. This is a way to increase risk diversification and in effect it's a good idea to pool resources like this and risks and make sure that others own them. But the problem is, of course, that you also create the incentive for some of the lenders, for some of the banks, to put really bad bad mortgages, risky mortgages into this pool and pass them on to someone else so that they are not forced to assume the risks themselves. And this is what happened, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, when they got new targets on how much they were forced to buy of of loans going to people with a low income. They were forced to buy more and more of securities like this rather than just owning loans like this. And um, of course on Wall Street this was a success because it meant that they earned fees on every step. When they bought these, um, these mortgages, when they put them into a pool, when they sold them along their own fees and bonuses. But it also became a bestseller around the world on global markets for one reason, because the mortgage-backed securities were considered almost risk-free, almost as, uh, as safe as uh, government bonds, according to the rating institutes, according to rating institutes like Moody's, Standard & Poor's, and Fitch, and, and others. They considered the most safe mortgage-backed securities as AAAs, almost the most secure investment, safe investment that you can make. And considering the the yield that you got, this was an incredibly lucrative investment. But they also considered the risky mortgage-backed securities as investment grade rather than, than speculative. And this is because of, well, it seems like alchemy works, right? Very risky loans, very risky mortgages. If you just put them into a pool and and sort of slice it up and sell it in different tranches. Suddenly, they're safe investments. Something strange happened along the way, something that made everybody interested. Norwegian municipalities bought mortgage-backed securities because they thought that, wow, this is a great and risk-free way of funding uh, education and healthcare in the future. The German state banks, they bought it. The Chinese government bought this because it was considered very, very safe. The problem, of course, was that the rating institutes weren't very, very, um, um, how shall we put this, honest (laughs) when they made ratings, did ratings like this. As um, two members of one rating committee, Said in an eternal chat, by the way, that deal is ridiculous. I know, right? The model definitely does not capture half the risk. Well, we should not be rating it. Hey, come on, we rate every deal. It could be structured by cows, and we would rate it. But there's a lot of risk associated with it. I personally don't feel comfy signing off as a committee member. And then they went off and signed it as committee members. Because this is what happened. Because people knew that they, um, they were paid by the people who wanted to sell those bonds. But more than that, they also had, since the 1970s, they had an official role as part of the regulatory systems. system, the three big rating institutes, now a few more than that, which meant that they didn't have to compete based on their reputation out there on the market. People were forced to go there and get the ratings And people and investment funds of different sorts, they had to follow those ratings. Some of them weren't allowed to buy what was considered uh, speculative, like pension funds, for example, which meant that they could do whatever they wanted. They still had their oligopoly power. And then they could start to abuse it as well, which is what they did. But these AAA ratings now were in 2004 and 2005, because, based on these AAA ratings, people around the world bought them. And soon, the banks, the investment banks began to buy them themselves because it was considered as a great, safe way of um, buying uh, these assets. And then, since it was almost totally safe, you could ba- uh, fund this completely with new loans at a low interest rate level. As Warren Buffett has said it, in every bubble there's three, there are three eyes. The innovators, the imitators, and the idiots. And now we come to the idiots. The, the fifth part of, of how you, fifth aspect on how you ruin the economy is to, when banks and investment banks began to buy assets like this, mortgage backed securities, they didn't just uh, put them on the balance sheet. Because based on new regulatory structures from the International Basel Committee, it was now expensive to have things on your own balance sheet. You needed 8% in capital because it was risky to own assets on on your own balance sheet. This is what a normal bank used to look like. And you have to have 8% that you can't invest in other ways if you own a mortgage-backed security. But... The Basel Basel agreement also meant that if you move these assets away from the balance sheet, if you build new special companies, CIVs or conduits, uh, that are formally independent, well, and then you fund them, not yourself, but by getting short-term loans on 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 the money market, well, in that case you only need 0.8% because you only give them a credit line you say if no one else is interested in buying in funding this with short term loans well then we'll step in this is what happened you begin to build new structures in other places in the so called shadow banking sector where it's less transparent because the regulator said it's expensive to be transparent this is a new pricing list and it 's expensive if you do it in the normal way, and if you have invest one hundred billion in mortgage backed securities, well then you liberate set seven point two billion free for new investments if you do it like this. so this is what happened this is what banks did and we can jump on to number seven um, why do people do risky things like this? Why do you have enormous assets funded on short term loans based on the fact that you 're that it's possible that you need new money tomorrow to to fund them. Well, part of them, the, this is the safety net to encourage this. We've got lender of last resort institutions. We've got deposit insurances. We've got various bailouts. Historically, could be injecting capital in in failing in financial institutions. It could be just a way of um, buying their their bad assets. But it's also the fact that Fed. 2002 and and onwards began to say that we will never do anything to to deflate a bubble. What we can do is to mop up afterwards. And this is a reversal of the traditional way of doing uh, central bank policies. The traditional idea is the punch bowl, the when the party gets going, the Fed is supposed to take the punch bowl out of there, so that people don't get too drunk. It's just enough that they're dancing a little bit. What Greenspan and Bernanke said in 2002 and onwards was that we're never going to re- gonna remove the punch bowl. In fact, we're going to spike it even more and make sure that you'll get all the party you need, and then we'll cure your hangover tomorrow. And of course, this means this alters the behaviour on the financial market. As uh, the Chief Investment Officer at Deutsche Bank Securities said, a hard landing for asset prices? I'm not so concerned because I believe that Fed is our friend. The moment things go, start to go wrong, they will reduce interest rates again and supply the market with liquidity. And, of course, then you start to do more dramatic things like that. So here are the seven steps. A lot of easy money. Money ends up in mortgages. Mortgages become mortgage-backed securities, and they get AAA ratings, so everybody wants to buy them. They're moved into the shadow banking sector. They are marked to market which means that they will will see a pro-cyclical phenomena when it comes to their pricing, and we will get a safety net to encourage it. So what happens then? Well, this is what you saw. The blue line, the the red line, the interest rates, the blue line is real estate prices. And you can see when interest rates began to move upwards, prices start to go down. It's suddenly expensive again to buy a house. And this is what happens afterwards. In 2006, prices began to, to be really depressed. And if that happens, well, the rest is history. Here are the mortgages. They begin to go sour, and if they go sour, the mortgage-backed securities, the risky ones, begin to go sour as well, and they explode. And in that case, suddenly the rating institutes realize, oops, we've made a little mistake. It looks like these deals have been structured by cows, so we can't give them AAA ratings anymore. So they begin to downgrade them, which causes panic on the market, because people don't, these are very untransparent products, so people only see the AAA rating know that they fund something that's A. Now they know that this is incredibly risky. We have no idea what we are funding. And if you don't know what you're funding, you do the only rational thing. You stop funding it. So suddenly the money markets, they see that these are too risky, so we're off. Banks realize that these are suddenly back on our balance sheets. And when they're back on our balance sheets, it's not just a double whammy. It's a triple whammy because you make a lot of losses because prices, real estate prices are depressed. But it also means that by law, you now need 8% of capital to, uh, as, as a safety measure when you own this. And, um, and you also have to fund this yourself. There are no money markets that are willing to lend. And when this happens... Well, we'll see a financial crisis. Mike Jones put it best in a card syndicated column in, I think, September 2008. The customer walks into the bank and says, I'm here to ask you for a loan. And the bank responds, that's funny. I was going to ask you the same thing. Because banks in the whole of 2007, they just have to get their hands on as much cash as possible to fund all the losses that they've made, to fund all these these um, new uh, things that they have to do. So let me just move on to my last slide here. This is what happened. Markets froze because they didn't know what risks were there and losses were everywhere. So how do we interpret this? Is this a a failure of laissez-faire, as the fresh president Nicolas Sarkozy put it? Is this the moment when laissez-faire is over, as the German finance minister put it? This is a uh, a graph from Financial Times when they tried to re-understand the financial regulations in the U.S. All the different regulators, the 39,000 people working full-time in the U.S. to regulate financial markets, 12,190 of which are based here in Washington, D.C. What were they doing when this bubble was inflated? Well, they inflated it. If you look back at all these seven steps, you can see that the government's finger over the crime scene. We saw this when it comes to the easy money put out there in the market by Fed. We saw this in housing policy, the political interest in doing this in Fannie and Freddie. We saw this in the mortgage-backed securities that got popular because of a government oligopoly given to rating institutions. We saw that these mortgage-backed securities were put in a shadow banking sector because international bank regulators said that this was the only lucrative thing to do. And you see that there was a lot of moral hazard out there on the market because of previous government attempts to bail out this sector and make sure that the financial markets wasn't hurt. So it's not really a failure of laissez-faire because the invisible hand was nowhere to be seen when this bubble was built up. And this leads to the conclusion. This leads me to being very worried about the things that we're seeing right now. Uh, We can see that this bubble, this crisis was created when we had too low interest rates, too much indebtedness, and too many bad investments. And now the government is trying all over the world to meet this with even lower interest rates, with even more indebtedness, and by saving and bailing out mistaken investments everywhere. And that is why I wonder if we're ready for a possible encore in the future when we save failed investments rather than winding them down. We can see that right now the invisible hand is not the most powerful force on the market to allocate capital and resources. It's the invis- invisible wallet of taxpayers and government bailing out all these failures that we've walked through in the seven steps. And I'm a little bit worried. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Johan. That was a terrific, uh, very visual. I, I think it's a pretty high bar, but I have uh, some confidence that our discuss uh, can be even more entertaining.
2: <laughs>
0: Tony, why don't we start with you? Sure, thank you.
3: This is a little different setup than mine. Where's the uh, screen for the? Yeah. Uh... Okay. Ah. Well, Mark, uh, thank you very much for inviting me to discuss this book. And Juwan, that's as a uh, fantastic presentation. Um, what I want to go through and discuss is basically what I like about the book. I think that it's fantastic in that, and I agree with Mark, in fact, who sold my thunder for my opening slide. This ties together all the pieces. I've seen lots of papers and books on the financial crisis attacking the Fed, attacking Fannie and Freddie, attacking Congress, blah, 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 attacking everybody. And But this book ties it all together in a, in a very, I think, even-handed fashion. I have a couple of slight disagreements with Juan on what was – Causing some of the problems, but uh, and again, let's start off with you. the government's role in creating the housing bubble by pushing home ownership. Absolutely, I mean that's that's clearly, as he said, fingerprints all over the crime scene. It's because they didn't know when to stop, and that's the problem. Some of these programs were well intended and were absolutely fine up to a point. The problem is. Who's responsible for putting on the brakes when this starts getting out of hand? And that's – his last slide is very representative of that. I think that's where we really failed. Um, yeah, Wall Street and the banks did jump on for the ride, and the Federal Reserve clearly helped by rate slashing constantly instead of just occasionally uh, um, just digging in their heels and saying, well, we'll get through the next couple of years. And the solutions we had were the Fed, Treasury, FDIC, Congress, and New Deal-type legislation. And I agree with you, Juan, that this is actually probably going to create, in a sense, more problems down the road. And finally, his point was, well, where were our regulators during all this? And, and th- those are very troubling issues. Now, one issue that I really like in his book is on CDOs, because having worked on Wall Street uh, twice, unfortunately, um, there's a quote I actually had in the Wall Street Journal uh, saying on CDOs. This came out in 2007. I said this is literally a virus. The rocket scientists of financial institutions managed to create a missile that landed on them, which is which highlights and characterizes exactly what happened. Is that he was going through the securitization process, which again I don't agree with them fully on the on the downside of it, but on the CDO issue, uh, almost types of contracts that you no transparency. I was doing a study on CDOs, and I couldn't get any of the data on them. The rating agency says, well, that's illegal for us to show them to you. And I said, wait a minute. This could cause systemic failure in the economy if all these blow up, which, of course, they did. And you're we saying, but we can't even understand how much risk we have in the market because you claim it's illegal for me to see it. So I mean, that's where we stood, now it's blown up, and now we know the end result. Uh, one of the, a couple of the points I want to use to help clarify Zhu Wan's uh, discussion is that we had overbuilding in the United States, no doubt about it. Everyone would agree with that. But what I wanted to point out was, is that in a sense, if you take a look at just this graph of home ownership. What we did from about 2000, well, at the end of the Clinton years through the Bush administration to now, what we did is we raised home ownership rates from approximately less than about 63%, and we got them up to about 68%. To encourage a 5% increase in home ownership rates, we have effectively almost collapsed the economy and destroyed large segments of the banking industry. Not to mention, and again, Johan hints at there. Sorry, Jiwan hinted at this. We have now left many homeowners with either zero equity in their houses or actually underwater by amounts up to three and four hundred thousand dollars, which most households will never be able to pay off. So it's created really innocent victims as well. But again, to get that extra five percent home ownership in the United States, we have literally trashed our economic future potentially. And let's take a look at this, and this is where where the regulators slide. And again, I wouldn't call it necessarily a a conspiracy. I would simply say that the regulators did not understand, along with some other participants in the market. Go back to 2001, we had conforming loans, 58%. Go up to 2006, conforming loans is down to 33%. And then we've got the infamous Alt-A, which is the documentation problem loans, which I never understood in the first place. 14% Fourteen percent home equity and uh, the jumbos aren't a problem if they're you know well underwritten, but twenty percent subprime. So in other words, how could you know our various regulators look at this and think this wasn't a problem? Sure, home ownership, sensible home ownership is a prerogative. Now, where are most of the problems really occurring? We have overbuilding in the d c. area. we have overbuilding in many parts of the country. But California, Arizona, Nevada, and Florida are the poster children for what happened. Take a look, and this is something coming out of 2006, where we looked at where most of the subprimes were. If you take a look in California, which is probably, we'll call it the biggest offender for the subprime market, we have the Inland Empire, which is right outside of L.A., and then going straight up to Sacramento. And look at that. Look at the concentration shares. This is primarily subprime city, if you want to call it and again when you're looking at the regulators who are doing this or congress or whoever is supposed to be doing our housing policy in the united states and you look at this and you how can you not see this is going to be a problem manifesting itself if this bubble ever shrinks and here's the default rates in subprime and again these are just to support juan's uh, study take a look at this and this is going fast forwarding to august of 2007 by then that whole Central Valley, Sacramento down to San Benito County, were having 30% default rates already. Uh, this is related to like, a story that was on CNN about Modesto, where they had a whole a subdivision in Modesto with 90% default rates, all abandoned. And again, this is, again, from, I would say, for the most part, well-intended. This is, was an unintended consequence. My view on it is they didn't know when to stop. Take a look at uh, alternative mortgage designs. This is MSAs with the highest number of second homes and investment property. Take a look at where the states are, second homes and investment properties. Again, how could our regulators or financial institutions, let's be honest, how could they go in and think that having 30 to 40% second homes in a metropolitan area wouldn't be bubblish if that ever pops? Look, it's Florida, Arizona, Nevada, and uh, California. And Senator Sununu, There, by the way, New Hampshire, I left it off. I didn't know he was speaking today, but Lake Winnipesaukee has one of the largest uh, bubble bursts and default rates in the, in the country. But it was too small to even graph it. But if you get a load of this, what it says is, where were our regulators and other parties who are, watch, are watchdogs for uh, fiscal safety and soundness, where were they? I mean, how could we not see these were going to be issues? Now, again, the good news is this is just going up to Q109. But uh, take a look at the center part of the country. Most of the United States is actually doing okay, is actually experiencing price increases, modest. It's really only in certain targeted areas where we uh, really overinvested in housing. And, again, a lot of that was between subprime lending, which was effectively unregulated for the most part, and then throw in all those second homes and investment properties. And, and as Yuan has, has uh, said, flippers. Flipper, and, and again, in defense of the banks, those, those are hard individuals to actually, in a bubble, identify. Because if housing prices are going up, you can have people you know, moving up dwellings for legitimate reasons. Um, in fact, I have a paper I'm finishing up right now using Phoenix as an example of uh, – we went through and tried to figure out who the flippers were, what kind of mortgage products they took out, etc., Ex-post, it's easy to say, oh, my God. And for policy reasons, we can avoid this again if we put in proper legislation, et cetera, to prevent this from happening. Uh, we'll see if there's the um, muscle or the uh, will to do such a thing. But take a look at Florida. And again, here's the case Schiller housing prices. Again, as we were watching these bubbles forming, which was Greenspan said there's a possibility, Uh, the problem is I think the possibility of how to deal with it was unanticipated because in the second half of 2007, housing prices fell off a cliff. Up till then, we actually, through 06 and 07, we had a mild plateauing and slight declines in markets. Everyone said, hey, that's the cooling off of a market, but we'll never see a bubble correction like we did before. My point is, is that somebody that was, uh, did risk management and additional working in the securities were constantly concerned about our risk exposure and saying, well, my gosh, shouldn't we have you know, risk models with a down 50 percent? No, oh, that'll never happen. But what if it does happen? Oh, that won't happen. I think most insurance, Freddie and Fannie, et cetera, all had down 5 percent to down 10 percent as the worst case scenario. They weren't anticipating some housing markets in the United States down 50. Now, again, uh, for JUAN, sense, it's not all residential. We had a commercial mortgage bubble and a commercial real estate bubble as well. Of course, when you have a housing bubble, what's going to follow? Retail, office buildings, it's all part and parcel, and that's when we're seeing clobbering the small banks. So in conclusion, as a professor at George Mason... I would love to have this, in fact, I can, I'm the professor, require this for reading for all my students because I think it's really good. And I would love it if Congress and the administration looked at this. Just because we don't, would love not to have this happen again. Uh, the crisis really was spread in four states, but it's spreaded since then. So, so even in the subprime market, which, again, we always knew had risk, that's why it's called subprime, but now it's bled into innocent victims in the prime market, To write on this, because we're not through with this crisis yet in the mortgage market, on, particularly on the commercial side, uh, letting the market correct while painful instead of the bailouts probably be the better way to do this. Um, kind of very wor- expansion of of TARP, TALF, TALC, and all the various programs we've put up, which are kind of bailout. I understand the instinct to preserve our institutions, but the taxpayers are going to pay horrendously and horrifically for this. Particularly, as I said, the innocent victims that got clobbered by this downturn in these markets. Um, we'll see if this mess uh, results in dramatic inflation in two to three years. Hopefully, Bernanke will be able to do something with this. But again, this could be one of the unintended consequences. Um, the only thing I really disagree with, not completely, but just partially uh, with Juan on, is the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, everyone likes to take a hit at that. The problem is from looking at the data... I can't see where, again, I'm not in favor of it, but I can't see where that really was causing that much of a problem. The problem really was originally the alt-A uh, subprime market kicking it off and l- in lack of understanding about what the downside risk to that should be. And B, uh, by and large, is actually a good thing. Remember, everyone forgets we put that into play because the SNLs and banks failed heroically back in the late 80s er, and early 90s. We came up saying, let's get some of these risky assets off the bank books, allowing them to lend more. Noble intention. The problem is exactly what Juwan said, is that we should have back then put the stuff on balance sheets so everyone can see the risk exposure that was coming. I actually wrote a paper in 2002 on ensuring, you know, trying to appeal to FASB changes to get the banks. And they kind of said, nah, our regulators understand what the risk exposure is. And I said, no, you don't. I sent them a nice graph of an amortizing mortgage with housing prices going up and going down. And I said, this is the risk. You've got to get banks to acknowledge that in their balance sheet. Did they? No. Of course, to this day, it's still very loosely worded and it's not on there. And we still have the same problem. So, again, as I said, uh, as you once said very nicely, I would love to have stronger regulations on the banking industry. However, uh, just in terms of preventing future systemic risk, can we trust the regulators to do this if Congress is really continuing to push? Now they're pushing multifamily. Uh, Again, I I kind of don't really have a lot of faith that we'll be able to Get out of this mess and not repeat the same mistakes. So I agree with you on that completely. Thank you very much.
0: Don.
2: Well, I do not have a PowerPoint presentation, but I, I have to say, I did enjoy your book a lot. And as an American who bought in 2000, I really enjoyed the housing boom. I miss <laughs> it. I. Did three cash out refis and paid off all my student loans, my car loan, remodeled my kitchen. Um, um, I also enjoyed in your book how um, it seems that that if it weren 't for Greenspan and Gordon Brown, we might have been able to avoid this whole thing and I wondered what your thoughts were on that um, and on uh, as a reporter covering this at the time. Um, when when iceland started going through all of its problems i mean i was it was just like oh another major catastrophe this week you know today and so i didn't have time to really read a lot about it at the time and it was very interesting his book goes into detail about how um how uh basically great britain declared iceland a terrorist country <laughs> and put them on a terrorist watch list and, um, and froze all the assets of banks and of, of the Icelandic banks in the UK, which was which was what really the financial crisis in that country, and also contributed to Lehman's bankruptcy. Um, uh, I thought that some of the, the the chapter on Fannie and Freddie were good. I also agree with Tony that CRA um, that a, a lot of people like, especially Republicans, seem to like to put a lot of blame on CRA. Um, when the subprime crisis really took off was when Fannie and Freddie, um, re- when they were unleashed from their accounting scandals and started realizing that those loans were far more profitable than um, than generic CRA type of loans, they really started plowing money into it, which provided, as you said, the the initial financing for those those securities to take off. Um, so I thought that that was good. It was. A little simpler than I think what was actually going on, but it was but it was still a very good overview and um, i don 't know i don 't i, I don 't have um, um, anything else really prepared, but it is a it 's a very well written book it gives a very good overview and some in depth analysis and um, it's interesting the way you look at, from not being an American, U.S. regulations, and how you had said that we had plenty of them at the time. We just had the wrong ones in place that contributed and exacerbated the crisis. So it will be interesting to see if you're able to write a follow-up on to how we extract ourselves from this level of government involvement right now. So, Thank, thank you, Dawn.
0: Senator Snudu?
4: Well, thank you. Um, You know, I I think the the book and the the presentation are excellent Um, for the very basic reason that it it lays out a a very clear description of all the different participants in what was a very complex system to this this failure in in the financial markets. And as Mark indicated in his opening remarks, uh, if you pick up the newspaper and read a story, um, even if you uh, read some of the, the published accounts and, and, and books that have been written on the subject, they do tend to focus very narrowly, either focus on, focusing on a very specific topic or in the case of a, a lot of uh, news journalism right now, they come into the story with a, a, a very specific point of view. that that they want to get across uh, in that article. Um, I think we all should have opinions and thoughts uh, about the causes of the crisis and and even the remedies, Uh, but I think what's been done here is to lay out uh, a pretty comprehensive overview of all the participants, what they were doing, and the way in which uh, they participated in and perhaps contributed to the financial crisis. I I would offer two observations or or, or really uh, emphasis Uh, on uh, two particular areas from the perspective of someone who was in in Congress during uh, much of this period. Uh, And the first is uh, with regard to the role of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as real drivers uh, of the crisis. And the second is the role of public policy broadly as a driver of the crisis. First, with regard to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, I I, I do single them out as drivers of the crisis – uh, it, it, more than mere participants, I mean there were many participants and, and participants that didn 't necessarily uh, behave appropriately, um, uh, do their jobs effectively. Uh, we can look at the, uh, the <coughs> investment banks and credit rating agencies again, all of the participants that were uh, were discussed very thoroughly here this afternoon. But what Fannie and Freddie did uh, was really an enabling activity in the purchase of Alt-A and subprime securities. Tony's chart showed the dramatic explosion in underwriting of Alt-A and subprime between 2001 and 2006. Now, people don't go out and underwrite ninja loans, no income, no job, no assets, unless they can make money doing it. And for the most part, the large underwriters couldn't make money underwriting originating these loans unless they could sell them to someone else. And people wouldn't buy those loans unless they could securitize them and sell the securities. And frankly, there wasn't a market, not a massive national or global market, for Alt-A and subprime securities until Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac got approval to purchase them and then began purchasing them with a vengeance. This wasn't casual investment, casual purchasing. They purchased with a vengeance. They were the largest purchaser of subprime and Alt-A securities between 2004 and 2007. Now, if you're Angelo Mazzillo at Countrywide, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are buying Alt-A and subprime, guess what you're doing? Guess what what kind of loans you're originating and initiating in your market wherever you might be? It's Alt-A and subprime. And if you're Lehman Brothers, and the GSEs are buying the leading tranches of Alt-A and subprime, guess what you're underwriting? Because it's a way to make money. And if Fannie and Freddie weren't allowed to purchase those securities, beginning back, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was 1999 when they were first given the approval to purchase subprime and Alt-A, you would not have had the dramatic explosion in the market. These were tremendously large financial institutions. And again, the, the prime <coughs> principal reason they bought these securities, well, it was really twofold. First, because they could make money doing it, because they borrowed at a subsidized rate, used that, that subsidized capital to purchase for their own portfolio, where they, they generated income by making investments, and the yield on these securities initially was quite high. So they made a tremendous amount of money. But second, and this brings me to the role of government policy, they got credit for meeting their affordable housing goals by doing so. And as, as, uh, as was pointed out, uh, they, they, they didn't just get credit for meeting those affordable housing goals. Congress and the regulators then increased the affordable housing goals, I think, in, uh, in 2001 and then again in 2004. Uh, so it provided encouragement. With regard to public policy, such a broad range of government-based initiatives that acted as a driver of this process, and in many cases, they were policies specifically geared toward Fannie and Freddie, the affordable housing goals, for example, Uh, the political decision to protect uh, their charter, the political decision not to Pass reform legislation when we had an opportunity in 2005, legislation that would have scaled back the size of their investment portfolios, increased their capital standards, and given their regulator the typical powers of a uh, a bank supervisor. But then there are all policy and the goals embodied in President Bush's uh, quote. We need to increase home ownership through, through FHA. Uh, We need to find ways to enable people to purchase homes with a smaller and smaller down payment. It it was a federal government policy to to find ways to allow people to buy homes with the smallest down payment possible, even no down payment uh, if they they qualified. And uh, CRA, the Reinvestment Act, uh, Community Reinvestment Act, I, I view that as simply part of this very broad range of government policies that uh, Tony described, increased government ownership by about five, per, uh, home ownership uh, by about five percentage points. But the consequences of those those policies is really quite devastating. Uh, why? Uh, a final, uh, just a couple of thoughts on why that uh, policy was driven as hard as it was by Republican and Democratic presidents by uh, Democrats and some Republicans in Congress. Uh, A lot of people point to the political clout of Fannie and Freddie, and they they certainly were big institutions with big lobbying groups and enormous charitable foundations that just found a way to attend every housing event back in your home state or home district, and that carried with it a lot of uh, political sway, if you will and, and uh, persuasion. But I think equally important is that members of Congress feared, because they didn't understand the complexity of these issues necessarily and weren't able to explain exactly why Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were candidates for reform and better regulation, they didn't want to appear to be anti-housing. I mean, the only thing worse than being anti-housing is being anti-education.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, and uh, and so uh, they're the, – uh, Lobbying groups that members of Congress would know very well, maybe it was the realtors or the home builders, good, hardworking people, small business men and women from your state or district would come and visit you and say, well, you've got to support Fannie and Freddie and you've got to oppose Sununu's reform bill because, um, because it's good for housing. You know, we've got to support these institutions because they're good for housing. And most members of Congress would take that at face value and say, yeah, you're right, I don't want to be anti-housing so maybe I won't co-sponsor that bill, and, um, and I'll, I'll stay away from. It. And uh, obviously, by by uh, 2008, when we finally passed that legislation uh, in July of 2008, that uh, Chuck Hagel and I had worked on for quite some time, it was fair to say that was that's under the dictionary uh, where the phrase "closing the door, barn door after the horses have left." That's pretty much the picture right there. Um, uh, but th- I think this is a, an excellent presentation and an excellent summary for people trying to weigh the many contributors to the uh, to the financial fiasco. Thank you. Uh,
0: th- thank you, Senator. Uh, I, I, I want to note something we often hear is that saw this coming, Uh, and I can't think of anything further from the truth. Uh, Both in 2004 and 2005, Senator Sununu, along with former Senators Hagel, Dole, as well as Senator Shelby, pushed legislation that, while they might not have avoided everything we're in today, would have made a considerable difference. So I think we do need to recognize the plenty of people who did say we had a problem. Uh, I remember at the time the constant refrain against the bill was, this would slow down the housing market. Uh, I think, in retrospect, that's exactly what we needed. Uh, I think Tony has a comment, and then we're going to open it up to uh, questions.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to thank uh, Senator Sununu for those remarks, and it brought up a point. Uh, actually, Bob Van Order, standing back there, and I wrote a paper uh, kind of help out on what Fannie and Freddie should look like, if at all, in the future. And one of the graphics we have in the paper is that uh, – in fact, I showed partly up there – that Fannie and Freddie's market share was falling rather dramatically over this time period. And and we were kind of uh, talking about this over the years, saying, good, because you know, they're sticking to their conforming loan market, and those are, you know, safe loans, et cetera. And all of a sudden, uh, there was a change uh, due to, you know, political or pressure from other sources, where then Freddie and Fannie did go out and start buying these, you know, uh, highly risky mortgages, and, again, various explanations. Someone said oh, we need to be competing for market share. And we're saying, Ooh, no, let's not do that. In fact, if anything, we should be toning back on the subprime and alt-A's. And, again, having worked on Wall Street, the first alt-A deal that came across my desk, I looked and I said, what fool would buy something like this? <laughs> and, boy, was I wrong. There's a lot of fools out there who bought this stuff. And it reminds me of his over- presentation, the Norwegian fisherman PowerPoint that I'm sure many of you have seen where they end up buying subprime securitizations and suddenly go, you know, I'm not receiving any money on this. Well, again, and when when Freddie and Fannie started competing, in a sense, with the subprime lenders, and then then at that point, I went, oh my God, all hell is going to break loose in this market. The second we get a downturn, Bob Schiller at Yale was calling for a bubble burst at any time, but as I said, I called everyone I knew that was doing risk modeling, and I couldn't find anyone that said down 50%, although they said, well, you're too negative about this. You're very always very pessimistic on the downside. And I went, yeah, but it's just five percent interest only loans. It, you know how 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 is this not going to be dangerous? And again, but we called them on Wall Street yield hogs. Uh, in fact, I flew over to France and was trying to discuss with a couple of the banks, saying they said, "Well, yields are so great on these things." I said, "Look at the collateral," but the collateral's performing well. I went but only because you have no data. Just think of the risk. Please they invite me back next year. But anyway, I just want to thank uh, both Juwan for a great book and thank the senator and Don for their comments as well.
0: Uh, before we open it up to questions, uh, I think Arthur wants to respond a little bit to a couple of the comments that were made.
1: Well, thank you very much for your interesting and, and very generous comments. I would just like to respond to to a couple of, of points here. Um, don't ask me if um I think that greenspan was the sort of <laughs> the factor the cause, and could we have avoided this without that I think the reason why this the title here is both the home ownership aspect and the easy money is that I think there are more causes out there, and all these things that you've talked about are the different and the the political will to. Build the housing market into a a, a bigger and bigger house of, of cards was very influential as well, but having said that, I think that monetary policy of money and interest rate is is probably the most important factor in changing relative prices in in an economy, so I think that was incredibly important, and especially in combination with this Greenspan put, as it's called in the market, the the idea that the Fed said that we're going to be there and mop up afterwards if things collapse. It creates so much moral hazard, so it's so it's incredibly dangerous. There's been a lot of talk afterwards, attempts to defend Fed by saying that there was this global savings glut and all the money coming from the emerging markets and from China and the Gulf economies and so on that made it impossible to increase interest rates faster than, than they did. And I think that's a an explanation that's uh, been created in rear mirror in a way because this was something that Greenspan and Bernanke began to worry about in 2004. By that time they had had interest rates that you had to look at in a microscope for three years and the real estate bubble was already going on when they began to see that look it's difficult to increase long term interest rates and this was only when Greenspan began to increase the rates from one to one point twenty five percent in June two thousand and four. Then he saw that long term interest rates they weren't following along. They kept being reduced. But yes, I, I think that the the inflow of money is a factor, but it's not the decisive factor. And I think there's a lot of research now showing that long-term interest rates are really influenced by the short term rates as well and by the Federal funds rate. And if you have if you increase your rates to one point twenty five percent, it still means that the Fed is incredibly expansionary in its policy to have interest rates that low at one point twenty five percent. So you're still creating a lot of well, easy money and, and you're you're building up your balance sheet at that time. So I, so I think it was an incredibly important factor. You also, but you and Anthony mentioned the uh, Community Reinvestment Act and how and how I possibly overestimate its influence. And I had to go back and look into the book. I, I only um, talk about it for two pages, so I, I hope I'm not trying to make too much of a point going there because I do agree this was a something that was only aimed at the institutions that had a deposit insurance, the commercial banks and institutions like that, not the investment banks, who was really driving the, uh, this um, whole um, uh, mortgage-backed security and CDO boom and, and other institutions as well. So I do agree there. But I think that it had an influence and a psychological influence in how it opened up a new market for for others, partly because it um, it also... While they said that commercial banks, you have to begin to uh, lend much more to to people with in in that uh, were uh, didn't get the same loans before, you can also begin to securitize it. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac began to guarantee securities like that. So. One, of, one person said, involved in, in pushing for this, said, this sends a powerful signal to the lending community. It's okay to make these loans, and you can even make a profit while you do that. And when those institutions who were involved, who were pushed to, to make loans like that, they all had a CRA rating, a Community Reinvestment Act rating that said you had to have someone on site who were really looking at, okay, so how good are we at, at making loans to people who, who we didn't get loans to give loans to before? And then that CRA rating was very important in the regulatory measures. So are you going to be allowed to open up new offices? Will this merger be, be allowed to proceed? And, and so on. So they really had that push. And the most important factor I think there was the fact that community groups of different sort and political pressure groups were almost given an official role to um, supervise this. The CRE rating had to be publicly made public and and official complaints from community groups was an important factor when you gave regulatory approvals later on. And this create this built up the whole industry, uh, the, the housing, uh, the political housing industry that you, you've been talking about, because the industry, the community groups, and politicians began to work together to try to make much more, many, many more loans like this, and one of those in community groups was ACORN, and I think that's one of the reasons why Republicans have been so interested in talking about the Community Reinvestment Act for so long, since they were so important in getting... Building up Obama's political career, but but having said that, I agree this was not the decisive factor.
0: Well, thank you. I think we've got time for a few questions. Uh, let's start right down here in front. Uh, oh, good. The microphone will be coming to you. And uh, you know we've, we've run over a little bit, so I really ask that you uh, keep your questions brief and to the point, uh, so we can get as many in as possible.
1: You must know me.
6: <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the fact that there were these limited number of rating agencies essentially an oligopoly why though why wouldn't that have
0: still been competitive why was why is it that these guys weren't competing with each other um i don't know how many there were maybe rating agencies but there must have been at least four or five right Three? Three. Three. Okay. Well, isn't that enough uh, to have, I mean, we have a car industry. We used to have a car industry with three.
1: Anyway, you know my question. Yeah. My name is Steve Hank. Well, um, the big three in the car industry has shown that that's the way forward to compete in the market. Uh, I I agree. We should, it, it should be enough in a way. But the incentives were completely distorted since they didn't have to care about their reputation. Everybody had to go to the big three. At that time and everybody were forced to abide by their decisions because uh, if you were in a pension fund you weren't allowed to invest if they didn't give you give the security a good rating but also all the banks and, and investment banks their capital requirement were based on the rating you needed good ratings to uh, to have well in order to have less capital than you would otherwise so it means that their incentive was not a long term reputation in the market it was not to to have the best product out there. Their incentive was twofold two incentives first of all let's try to make sure that we that people come to us and not the other two and second of all let's um well and the the second one was, let's not bother about what happens to our long-term reputation because we've still got our, our oligopoly. So it means that you basically have to give more generous ratings than the the other big two so that they come there. And we see this happening again and again, and there are so many inside stories about how, how this is going on. Someone in, in one of the big three mentioned that you're sitting around a long committee table and then you've got all those young um, ratings individuals to say that oh this is bad this is speculative this is this is b minus or something like that and then you go all the way down to to the boss and he looks at his calculator and says no you're really sure because you know um, there's a good risk diversification and um, we've given good ratings like this to similar products before and furthermore prices never uh, on the housing market they never They're never reduced. We have our data back to 2002 when we were in the middle of a terrible recession, and yet prices climbed by 4%. So it means this is good. So with that in mind, should we go another round round the table and see what kind of ratings you want to give them? And then they say, oh, AAA, 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 of course. Because if they don't, you go to one of the other two big ones, and they will be happy to provide you with – better ratings because then people will come back there. And others, they have to follow those ratings. And if you're a Norwegian municipality, you have no idea what kind of product this is. You just you just follow it a I, lot.
0: I, I will know really quickly, quite often you have to have two ratings to hold many investments as well. And uh, Tony touched on this point a little bit essentially what the rating agencies were giving you were consensus forecasts in terms of the Wall Street consensus was we're never going to see a decline more than 5%. That's what the rating agencies were based on. There was no way to short the housing market in that way. So there was no incentive for them to give you know weight to a 40 or 50% declining prices. Uh, while I truly believe that the rating agencies is a fascinating question, and I'm considering having a policy forum on that very topic at some point, I think we should move on to another before we run out of time. Uh, this gentleman here in the front.
5: My name is David Hartz from Alexandria. I have a question for Professor Sanders. You use the term, we left homeowners underwater, um innocent victims. I've read at least 25 stories in the popular press, the Post, the Wall Street Journal. I haven't seen an innocent victim in any one of these people. Uh, There was one story about a person in California who bought a house for $275,000 with a $220,000 mortgage in 1995, and he filed for bankruptcy two years ago, owing $720,000 on his house. Another group of houses in California that people bought Around the turn of the century for $150,000. They were losing them and they owed over $400,000 for all, on all of these houses. So, can you quantify how many people are really innocent victims and how many people have taken advantage of the largesse of the banks?
3: Well, that's a good question. And uh, I would say that I agree with you on half of your point. Now, there were a lot of people that actually made out like bandits at the expense of the banks. On the other hand, there were, I mean, this is the problem when we, we have sort of these uh, anecdotal stories that appear in the press, is that they pick one side versus another. There were people that actually moved out because this, remember, Arizona, California, Nevada, and Florida were the areas of rapid job growth. So people may have moved out there for jobs, bought a house with 20% down, were behaving what we consider to be economically rational and safe, and all of a sudden housing prices then two years later fall, Fifty Monterey, for example, county, fell 60%. So those are people that actually weren't speculating, actually went with the labor force, went in and put 20% down previously riskless down payment sizes, and behaved themselves. And in the conforming loan market, that was probably more the mass of the market. But when you went out to California, I agree with you uh all the subprime alt a who aren't always irresponsible per se, but the flippers et cetera, yeah. But there were actually innocent victims. Not all were innocent. There was plenty of uh, guilty victims. And that's why when we're going through the FBI fraud investigations and going through and trying to relearn what happened here, there's, you know, but there were innocent victims. But there's a lot of people that made millions and are still millionaires. And some people lost their shirts. So it's just tragic that whole thing occurred. We shouldn't have created that incentive for massive millions in this uh,
2: I mean, I'd I'd add that, um, you know, as a journalist, greed and stupidity are pretty universal on Wall Street and with regular ordinary Americans, you know, um, with my own experience, I owe 80,000 more than I bought my house for. But I still have at least 300,000 in equity because I got to a point where the mortgage officer offers. We're pouring in every day, and I'm like, this is ridiculous. I can't afford to pay that back. I could have gone and taken that loan and now been in the same predicament. So at some point, you have to use common sense, and people lose sight of that in bubbles, in bubbles like this.
7: A uh, Woman here in the end. Right. Thank you. This is a question for Professor Sanders and Ms. Kopecky and I guess uh, Senator Sanders. I don't know if you want to answer it. Um, I think the message that's always been presented to us Americans is home ownership, home ownership, The dream of America is to own a home, and it started way back before all this stuff. So let's be pro-renters because I'm one, and I don't have a mortgage and choose not to own, and many people do the same. My question to you all, with the current situation, with the bank failings, the mortgage stuff, people getting mortgages, you know, didn't deserve, I can't rent if I can't prove income not going to rent to me. Uh, What type of regulation do we need for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and other agencies? How much? How far? What agencies need more agency uh, regulations? Which ones need less? And with this administration keeping Bernanke on, where do you think we're going to be or how are we going to be in the next, let's say, five to ten years?
3: I well, will take the first shot at that, and I am sure Senator Sununu would like to probably chime in on this. Um, Tom Stanton, who you're, some of you are very familiar with, when I was saying that if we properly regulate Freddie and Fannie and actually regulate them this time as opposed to kind of uh, shadow regulation, um, maybe we could go back to the conforming loan model and just really cap all their activities so we don't end up with this, which is hurting tons of people. Um, and he emailed me and said, fat chance. There's no way you'll be able to do this. Fight Right now, the CEO of Freddie Mac uh, has been brought in primarily with the goal of not tampering operations, but how do I reform the board so the board acts in a way in a more, I wouldn't say responsible way, but that's really what it's about. The question is, can they be regulated Um You know, the the wishful thinking is yes, but, again, as long as they remain sort of political animals, that's going to be very difficult to do in time. You know, I I would love to tell Tom Stanton we can effectively regulate them and cap their size and cap the retained portfolios and let them do, you know, securitization only. But, again, am I optimistic that can be achieved? Um, after Zhu book, the answer is, well, I actually knew this before I read Zhu book. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very nervous and not overly optimistic about effective regulation. I hope it works, though.
2: Um, right now, they are going to be required to start in early next year to wind down their portfolios. and Fannie and Freddie, yeah. Um, they're, internationally, their reputation has been so... Um, a lot of people in the in different regulators say that their international reputation that Asian investors have never come back. Um, the companies as they stand right now, a lot of uh, policymakers don't believe that they can go on and that the, the subsidies that are given to them will not translate into you know, into uh, lower homeownership costs for Americans to the degree to which they were before all of this. So they feel that these two companies are probably damaged goods, need to be done away with, and something new that replaces their functions needs to come up. Um, as far as what needs to be done in the future, I don't know, but I do know that everything that has been done is, is according to people I've talked to, interfering with the market's ability to recover it uh, itself. It's, um, it's going to make the recession longer, It's going to – there's not an ability for the markets to to discover what the real – the true price of goods are because you have the Federal Reserve interfering buying up these mortgage products. Um, Already, the goal of the Fed's mortgage buying program was to keep mortgage rates below 4.5%. Well, that worked for about – three or so months, and they started creeping back up, and it's because international investors are worried about other issues, inflation and things like that. So it's, it's impossible for the government to do what their goals are, and they're seeing that the markets are having a, a real difficult time trying to figure out what the true price of these assets are. And so what's being done now, while it may have saved things, you know, in a time of crisis, it's also going to take, you know, some pe- people are saying decades to correct itself in the, in the long run.
4: Um, at a minimum, uh, as they're currently structured or were structured just prior to the crisis, um, you need a regulator that has the power to set realistic capital standards. These were the most highly leveraged institutions in America for all intents and purposes. If you read newspapers, most print journalism, they point the finger at hedge funds, and I'm sure there are many bad actors within hedge funds, but a typical hedge fund might have been leveraged 2 to 1 or maybe 3 to 1. These institutions were leveraged 50 to 1 So you need a regulator that can set strong, meaningful capital standards. There's no reason for them to maintain trillion-dollar investment portfolios. Those are just a way to play the spread against their subsidized borrowing rates. Um, There should be very strong limits on the kind of businesses in which they can engage, and they should be narrowly focused on liquidity in secondary mortgage markets. Uh, That's a minimum, an absolute minimum. But Looking beyond that, I think some of the reforms that, uh, that were described earlier, um, you know, really divesting them completely of their portfolios, narrowing their message e- mission even further, and revising their charter, you know, taking away their, their tax-exempt status, for example. Um, things like that I think would go a long way toward moving them along the path of real independence so that taxpayers aren't put on the hook again in the future.
0: Uh, I think you've got one uh, time for one last question, and as long as Bert promises to be brief, <laughs> I'll let him have it.
6: This will be brief. Uh, Bert Ely, banking consultant and occasional commentator on housing finance issues. Uh, you want first of all, I'm looking forward to uh, to reading your book. Um, I didn't see in the index any reference to covered bonds. Uh, covered bonds have been used uh, in in Europe, as you know, for over two centuries to uh, finance uh, housing. Uh, other types of long-term assets, Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, the potential role for covered bonds in U.S. housing finance? A covered bond is a secured borrowing by a financial institution. The financial institution retains the ownership of the mortgage, issues the bond, and the bondholder is secured in the first instance by the assets, secondly by the institution. Covered bonds are almost always AAA rated and have uh, uh, performed uh, amazingly well even in the, uh, in the current crisis. There are about three trillion them outstanding in, in outside the United States and a few in the United States.
1: Would you be terribly disappointed if I pointed you in to, to the way of the real expert on the subject, Anthony Sanders? Well, not by the air for what you think, but as a yeah. European. European. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. about covered money. As an alternative,
6: yeah. as, a, as, a, as a way of financial, not necessarily the only way, but as a way to compete against securitization, which is an alternative yeah. funding
1: money. <laughs> Well, I think it's an, it's an interesting alternative, and uh, I definitely think there's potential. But I would also say that I don't think that securitization is a is a problem. And uh, Anthony talk, talked about that as well. I think the whole idea of securitization and uh, creating risk diversification in that way is to a large extent, a good idea. It's a healthy way of uh, trying to uh, make sure that you're not too overly exposed as an institution to a particular area, to particular persons, to a particular uh, tiny pool of of mortgages or loans of uh, of other sorts. I mean, when it comes to business loans, uh, an important factor there as well when it comes to student loans and car loans as well. So I think that what we're seeing right now, what we're hopefully seeing, and that depends on, to a large extent on what happens to uh, the le- regulatory uh, mechanisms surrounding this, um, but I hopefully we'll be able to weed out the, the bad aspects of securitization, understanding the problematic incentives that, has, that made sure that so much... Bad loans and subprime was put into those um, parcels that uh, we'd be able to see it come out more strongly in the future and and compete. But uh, but then again, I'm I'm not sure if that's really what's what's going on with all the
3: safety nets and, and new aspects on that. But I'd still be interested in hearing the experts on the subject. Well, since we have limited amount of time, I'll make this very brief. Uh, covered bonds, Bert, is a very interesting approach, um, and it's been recommended to replace securitization. Although the, the basic, one of the basic problems with securitization and the reason why it failed um, largely is because banks weren't retaining sufficient interest in the loans that they were originating. So therefore, when we have what's called repos... You've got uh, you know, the, the people, the Norwegian fisherman sa- hires an attorney and says, my God, you didn't underwrite these properly. They do an investigation, and it actually says in any securitization deal, the bank has to cough up the money and repurchase the loans. Problem? All these banks are going bankrupt by, by the day. And b, it just took too long in court to go through, and so that was not a very satisfactory way of doing it, but having the banks at least post capital for securitized loans highly unpopular, but that would go to towards achieving sort of what the covered bond model is so that 's the two start converging after a while uh, you know i 've seen studies, but most of the studies. Working on the two are, are really never come out with a very strong opinion on whether one dominates another or not. But I agree, it's an interesting thing we should explore, particularly since we're redoing Fanny and Freddie, and that might be a very viable solution.
0: Well, thank you. I, I want to thank our author and our uh, discussants, uh, and also want to welcome all of you to uh, lunch in the Winter Garden and up there as well, and come by and talk to the author afterwards. <laughs>